This is the History Tavern Podcast. A corrupt political machine wreaks havoc for over a decade in a small Tennessee town. GIs return home from World War II, determined to restore democracy. In order to do so, however, they must take up arms against the government, but ultimately win the only successful armed rebellion since the revolution. It's a story that could hardly be believed if it hadn't actually happened. On this episode of the History Tavern Podcast, hosted by me, Nick Tony, I talk to New York Times bestselling author, Chris DeRose, about his brand new book, The Fighting Bunch, The Battle of Athens, and how World War II veterans won the only successful armed rebellion since the revolution. We talked a little bit about this um, at the end of the Dan Sickles interview last year. Uh, of course, you've written many books, um, but I don't think any of them before this one come after the Civil War. So what was it like for you to write this book, um, The Fighting Bunch, which is about uh, the Battle of Athens, 1946, uh, veterans who decide to restore uh, good government uh, in this small town in Tennessee. What was it like to write a story that was somewhat alive, somewhat modern? You know, I, I think you had the opportunity to even talk to some people who were either there or just really close to the story. So can you talk about the difference between writing this book and uh, some of your other books? Yeah, my first book ends in 1789. And from that point forward, I promised myself that every time and every time without fail, I'd break that promise to myself that I would write about a subject where I could pick up the phone and just interview someone rather than trying to triangulate from a fragment of a document what happened or you know, speculate. I want to be able to pick up the phone and interview people. And of course that never happens, right? I write a book about Abraham Lincoln's time in Congress, I write a book about the Civil War and the five former presidents who lived to see that Civil War. I wrote a book about the Dan Sickles uh, trial, uh, the hysteria around America's first celebrity murder trial. And I used to joke that anything after that was current events, you know, and not history. Um, but I'm so glad I came into this story, you know, about these incredible World War II veterans and their stand for, for, for their right to vote and for democracy in their hometown that followed World War II. I conducted probably 36 interviews with um, people who were alive and eyewitnesses to some of the events uh, of this story. And uh, many of the, the children, I call them children, they're in their 70s now, uh, children of the people involved. And so it was a wonderful transition. It'll be really hard to go back to the 19th century once I've been able to actually speak with people. So let's, let's get into that story a little bit. And again, we're talking about, uh, well, the story, I think uh, for our purposes, 1936, there's this machine, the political machine uh, that uh, exists in Tennessee. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about how do you build a machine like this uh, that ultimately these veterans take on? Sure. Well, you start with the sheriff. The sheriff's the most powerful person in the county. The law is really what the sheriff says the law is. And the sheriff has a number of deputies. And the sheriff and his deputies are compensated based on how many arrests they can make and how long people spend in jail. So it's a really perverse incentive to arrest and lock up as many people as possible for any reason or for no reason at all. And so you got a lot of people making money off of this. These are very lucrative jobs, particularly in the depression era. 
And these people are making the equivalent of, you know, four or five attorneys. I use a number of analogies in the book to try to help people understand just how lucrative uh, these positions were. And that was just the money on the books. If the sheriff decided, you know what, this gambling establishment can stay open um, and, and get money for that, or this house of repute, or, um, you know, this roadhouse selling illegal liquor, or if this particular bootlegger doesn't have any trouble on his route, there's, there's all kinds of money for this. So you've got money on the books, you've got money off the books. And it's an ability to hire people, give people government jobs where either they didn't have to show up or didn't have to work too hard. And so you have this machine that reinforces itself, right? You have all these people who are making all this money and who are dependent on the continued survival and success of the machine. And so, um, you know, it comes down to them on election day saying, you know, we're not gonna leave anything to chance. And so you have elections where ballots are stuffed uh, ballot boxes are swapped, where people are kicked out of polling places at gunpoint, where ballot boxes are moved to locations controlled by the machine, where they literally just make up vote totals and announce them. And so really democracy itself fails to exist in, in McMinn County for about a 10-year period, starting in 1936. And it's so fascinating that it's not, uh, this isn't hidden. You know, th- this is this is pretty clear to see. Um, everybody's had a run-in, it seems. At least everybody in your book had a run-in with um, the, the machine or the sheriff. And I, I'm just curious, uh, and again, we're talking about Mc, McMinn County in Tennessee, which I believe is between Nashville and Chattanooga uh, in eastern Tennessee. How did the machine locally fit into the machine statewide? Because you, you do spend some time talking about uh, Edward Crump, uh, the, the, the Democratic Party there. Um, you know, did that that machine didn't just exist locally, it was part of sort of a bigger thing. Yeah, that's a really good point, because you wonder, you know, okay, you've got this county that's completely uh, under the thumb of this corrupt political machine. Why don't the judges do something about it? Why, why don't prosecutors step in either at the state or local or federal level? Where are the state police? Where's the governor? Um, and the answer to that is that this machine in McMinn County was affiliated with a statewide machine under the control of Ed Crump out of Memphis. And so Crump controlled, at this point, he controlled the legislature. He, he handpicked governors. He would never miss an opportunity to remind them that even though he had no title himself, that he was the boss, right? He was the king of Tennessee and they were going to do what he wanted. And so he decided who went to the Senate he decided who became governor. You know, he decided what laws were written. He decided who got state contracts. And so the state police would show up in McMinn County on election day, but they'd show up to help the machine win. And so, you know, judges were elected at this point in history in, in Tennessee. And um, so he could official elections. And so there really was no recourse at all for the people in McMinn County outside of uh, the Justice Department in Washington, D.C., and you'll see them intercede at two different points over this 10-year period, each time serving up pretty low-level people, and each time with pretty disastrous results or, or, or minimal results, uh, almost to the point where it's better if they hadn't gotten involved at all. And there's a few, few reasons for that. Number one, I think elections were largely seen as local matters at this time, especially if there's no federal candidates on the ballot, your right to vote, it's a, it's a local issue, it's not a DOJ issue. DOJ is also focused on World War II related affairs. 
But also there's a more cynical and I think completely accurate explanation for some of this, which is boss Crump controls two US senators. And if you're the Roosevelt White House and then the Truman White House, you've got to be mindful about playing in Ed Crump's sandbox. If you're going to go into his backyard and start indicting people, you have to tread carefully. So there's really no recourse for the people in this county. It's really, people talk a lot about the Battle of Athens, but they don't understand just how, how cornered these people were, how they had their backs up against the wall, how they literally had no recourse of any kind from any quarter for a decade. I imagine one of the uh, one of the people that made this such a, an attractive story for you to tell was Bill White, um, who, who just jumps off the page. Uh, the sources are rich. And so can you talk a little bit about Bill White, his role in this story and why, why he's one of the central figures in your book? Yeah, absolutely. So Bill White, uh, in the description of one journalist who interviewed him was a man John Wayne would have looked up to. <laughs> Just an incredible, uh, really tough character. And if you've seen any of the last four or five Clint Eastwood movies, basically imagine, you know, imagine his character from Gran Torino, uh, <laughs> but as an 18 year old. Um, so Bill White, uh, his family moves to Athens when he's young. He enlists in the Marine Corps shortly after Pearl Harbor, days after Pearl Harbor. Um, and he is part of the first offensive action in World War II, landing on Florida Island just before uh, other Marines landed on Guadalcanal. And so he's just this incredible uh, figure, really kind of brash, but really you can tell he's got a, got a huge heart and cares a lot about the people around him. And, um, you know, really is concerned with doing what's right in the situation. And he has a, a clear eyed view. He comes back from the war. He finds out his father's been arrested while he was off. Well, he was off fighting for what he was told that was the freedom of the world. Comes home and finds out his father was, you know, harassed and thrown in jail by some deputies just looking to make a, a buck and tries to get rationing stamps to go to his grandfather's funeral. His grandfather was probably the person he was closest to in the world. And he comes home from his service as a drill instructor at Paris Island for his grandfather's funeral and he can't even get stamps to drive without bribing the police chief. And so he comes back and he really he realizes, boy, something's really, really wrong here. And he's of course not the only one. Every other GI comes back and they come to this realization and they come back to these horrible stories of how their families had been mistreated and harassed while they were away at war. And they said, okay, we're gonna do something about it. And they said, well, you know, we, we, we've got our heads filled with this idea that we were fighting for democracy and free elections and fair elections and the freedom of the world, we'll just run a campaign against these guys. And so Republicans and Democrats uh, and independents all set aside their partisan differences and formed an all veterans ticket, the GI ticket, in order to um, run the machine out of town. And they figure, look, we'll get more votes than them. And, and they, you know, they wouldn't dare try the stuff they tried on our parents and grandparents with right, us. Right. And um, Bill White says, you guys are fooling yourselves if you think that these guys aren't going to give you a fight over this. Right, right. Um, so uh, and b before we get to the fight, um, can you can you talk a little bit about uh, obviously, Chris, you're you're a student of history. and You've written several books, uh, books that deal with war, the uh, Civil War, especially. Is there anything is there a theme here at play that we see with war and the effects that war has on the home front in terms of 
you know, people, we've just gone through a war. Um, you know, uh, we put our we we put our butts on the line for it. We're coming home, and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna reap some of the benefits of what we just accomplished. I mean, is that at, is that at play here? Some of those social barriers breaking down a little bit. Oh, that's such an interesting question. You know, I hadn't uh, I hadn't thought about it like that, but I think it's a, a really good observation. You know, like in founding rivals, we go through the Revolutionary War. But then so much of that book focuses on how close we came to not becoming the United States of America that we think of today, right? How close we came to not having the constitution that we have today, how close we came to not having that, that union of states. So yeah, I think there's, there, there's a lot of that at play here. You, you risk your life for something and you come back and you darn sure wanna make sure that the juice is worth the squeeze, right, you know, right. it wasn't true for the Civil War generation, right? Yeah. I mean, the failure of Reconstruction. It's it's um, so interesting, Chris, because, you know, uh, uh, seeing Bill White and seeing some of these other characters who go off to war, and I, not char- I mean, real people who go off to war, and you see their words in your book. Um, these are people who are, they rally to the cause in, in 1941. They, they join right up. Um, uh, part of it is, you know, uh, they're attacked and they're they're ready to go fight, and a, lo- a lot of it also seems that they're, you know, it was a way out or a way up for them too. Um, you know, Bill White, I think you write, he had never been full in his life. He didn't know what it was like to to not be hungry. You know, poor, th- these are in a lot of cases poor people. So it was just really interesting to see the war play out through their eyes. You know, I think we we get a big perspective. Uh, a lot of times from far back, but I just really enjoyed that part of your book. Thank you. Yeah, I I thought you couldn't tell this story. When people talk about the fighting, the Battle of Athens. They talk about some of the broad details of what happened, but you can't understand that without understanding what they went through in the war, right? Part about America, what they learned about themselves, what they saw and what they sacrificed. You know, they watched their friends get killed in front of them and they were injured. You know, Bill White got shot on Tarawak and you can't understand why these guys wrote that blank check again, right? We talk about it as like a blank check, right? When you when you sign up to serve in the military, um, that you understand that part of the deal may be that you, you don't come home from your service. They take that risk again, right? They risk their lives, they risk going to prison to stand up against the, the sheriff and his men and the machine. And you can't understand that step without understanding what they what they did in the war. And yes, it is really remarkable I mean, we've had a tough year in 2020 and there's no question about it. But when you think about these depression era boys, you know, in 1941, they'd been living with the depression for over a decade, right? They were over a decade into the depression and then they had to go fight a war on top of it. And yeah, it was remarkable to me that Bill White didn't understand what satiety was until he went to the Marine Corps. He never <laughs> yeah. had enough to eat. Yeah, yeah. Didn't know what it meant to be full. I wanted to pause for a moment to talk about one of my favorite small businesses, TR Historical. TR Historical is a one-stop shop for people who love history. The products they sell help people express their enthusiasm for subjects just like fans of sports teams. TR Historical offers items from all different subjects and time periods worldwide. Ancient, American Revolution, World War, Civil War, Science, and Art History. Please check out TR Historical's website, trhistorical.com, or follow them on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just talk about a little bit more about... Um, that the the organization that the GIs put together, what what are they trying 
to do and what kind of support do they get? Sure. Well, so they run five candidates for countywide office, you know, from sheriff down to register of deeds and um, three Democrats, two Republicans, four World War II veterans, one World War I veteran. And so they're trying to run what they say is a nonpartisan campaign, right? It's not about Republicans or Democrats. It's about restoring the very basic rights, uh, uh, you know, as Americans, the right to vote, the right to, to choose their leaders and to end corruption in the county. Of course, then the, the problem is never whether they're going to get enough votes. Right. That's never, that's never the issue. They run on one of the strangest campaign slogans in history, which is your vote will be counted as cast. <laughs> and as far as I know, that's the only campaign I've ever seen that relied on convincing people that their votes would be valid. <laughs> because after 10 years of this, I mean, you see the voter, voter participation just, just take a nosedive at a certain point in this county uh, where people just stop showing up. It's not worth it. There's right. retaliation for people who vote the wrong way. They're being forced to vote on transparent ballots. And so it's just, it's just not worth it. So they have to convince people that this time it can be different, that you know, they're all standing up and walking confidently and standing up for their beliefs. And you know, there's a sense that, okay, you know, maybe, maybe this is really our chance to, to rid ourselves of this machine. What happens on election day? Well, on election day, uh, the machine shows up with more men and more firepower than ever before. Sheriff Pat Mansfield had over 250 men under arms. So that included McMinn County sheriffs, the municipal police of the, the major cities like Etowah and Athens, deputies from neighboring counties like Polk County, which was closely allied with the statewide machine. Um, there were special deputies who were hired for the day. Some of them had been recruited straight from the penitentiary to um, given a badge and a gun and um, to, to assist with the taking of the election. You had uh, state police who were always on hand to help the machine win. And so, uh, you know, and from the, the minute, even before the polls open actually, you have poll watchers who are arrested, assaulted, dragged to jail. They make it really clear from, from the minute this all begins that nothing's gonna be different about today. You know, you've got a, a bunch of tough young guys who are running for office and a um, bunch of young tough guys supporting them. We're, we're going to get, we're going to have more. More men, more guns, more tough guys, tougher guys. You know, and, and and we're going to take this election from you. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, as I was reading, I was reminded a little bit of the book we talked about last year, uh, your book about Dan Sickles, um, and the role that the press played. Uh, it's so It was so interesting. There was a local radio station that at times was playing, th this battle was taking place over the air um, with gunshots being heard and explosions. Um, and this did get quite a bit of, of attention after the fact. So can you talk a little bit about the press and, and uh, that local radio station? Yeah, sure. So yeah, the, the, the Tennessee newspapers followed this race pretty closely uh, from the, the, the Tennessean in Nashville to the you know, Knoxville newspapers. This is back in the days where you know, every city would have multiple newspapers. Now, now they're all just down to one or two. But you had the Knoxville Journal and the Knoxville News Sentinel and the, the News Free Press out of Chattanooga and the Chattanooga Daily Times and the a Daily Post-Athenian in Athens. And so they all covered this race very closely. Um, and, you know, the, the machine had quite a reputation in Tennessee and the regional newspapers had, had covered uh, many of their antics in, in previous elections. And, 
you know, everyone was like, wow, these guys are putting up a real serious threat to these guys. We're going to see what happens. And um, you get you get a lot of national press. Really, the night of the battle, word starts word starts getting out, and the local newspaper starts getting phone calls from you know the New York Post, uh, Chicago Tribune, Atlanta Journal Constitution, all over the country. The Battle of Athens was front page news in the United States. I think there are fourteen different New York Times articles written about the Battle of Athens and its fallout. It's an incredibly wow widely covered story. There were, it was international headlines. There were people in Athens who were still serving in places like Berlin and in Tokyo, and it was in the newspapers there. And so this was worldwide headlines. And, and you know, for an event we don't, we don't think about much today and isn't well remembered today, it really was a massive story. You couldn't have, have avoided this story if you'd been alive at the time. How did the battle play out? Uh, as I was reading, it, it reminded me of like an old Western, you know, the, the, you have one, one group, which was the machine, uh, sort of hold up in the, I believe it was the jail. And then you have the GIs across the street and the sheriffs have the ballot box and they're refusing to give it up. Both sides have hostages. Um, I mean, it's really fascinating. At one point, there are dynamite bombs being used by the GIs. I mean, it, I, I'm thinking, is this is this Rio Bravo? I mean, th this is really um, uh, like a scene out of a movie. And so, um, and I, I don't, you don't have to go into to incredible detail because I, I want people to pick up your book and and see it play out. But can you just give us sort of a little bit of, of what happened that night? Well, first, I want to say I'm so glad that that was your impression because even though it obviously takes place in 1946. I wrote it with a Western in mind. Um, this to me felt very much like a Western story, even though it's a World War II setting and, um, and you know, the post-war era, uh, it really felt like a Western to me. And I think it's, you know, I, I love the idea of art imitating life and life imitating art in return. And to think that these boys grew up reading Zane Grey novels and went to the, the movie theaters and saw Tom Mix you know, the cow, great cowboy actor, you know, right off into the sunset after beating the bad guys. And then that they would end up coming back from the war and, you know, literally marching on the jail and confronting a corrupt sheriff. I mean, what could be more amazing than that? You couldn't make it up, right? You certainly couldn't. I mean, and, and the, you know, and you mentioned that the movies they would have been watching and, and the, the, the things they would have been reading. I mean, who would have thought to use dy to use dynamite the way that they did? I, you know, um, the, they couldn't get the sheriffs out of the jail, and somebody's like, "Oh, well, there's dynamite somewhere, so let's let's yeah, use I mean, that." that. It would have been just something, you know, like they would have taken away war too. That like, okay, like this, you know, we're not laying enough firepower on the target. We need something more, right? Because they're they're barricaded in this jail. Uh, jail is the most secure building in the county, and um, you know the deputies if they can stay away from the windows they're not going to get shot so it's going to be tough to get them out of there you can't storm the jail without taking a lot of casualties so they're at an impasse so yeah the the, the gi say okay well we need to go find some dynamite so they spend a lot of the night looking for for more fire firepower they try molotov cocktails and i i, I this is one of my favorite things i discovered in the course of writing this book i thought it was so funny but there was an aborted, there was an aborted plan to fly a plane over the jail and drop <laughs> bombs on the jail from a plane. I thought that was the greatest, and it, it literally gets aborted because they find out that the jail had surrendered right before the plane's about to take off. It's incredible. It's a good thing, a good thing they 
it out in time. Uh, and, and remarkably, that night, nobody died, right? Nobody died. It's an incredible story. I Unreal. Think it's, a very, it's a very different story if someone had died. Right. Um, and it really is, it feels like divine providence that these people are shooting at each other relatively close quarters for over six hours. There's dynamite. But also then there's, there's after the jail's liberated and you've got all these sheriff's deputies who have spent you know 10 years stealing your democracy, the 10 years of pulling over your mother and, and, and taking money from her, you know, for, for no reason, or arresting your grandpa. Um, and, you know, and there's there's a reckoning, and and you know, there's there was very nearly a massacre that followed the surrender of the jail because there was there was so much pent-up uh, anger and and very justifiable rage at these people who were sworn and paid to defend this community, but who instead terrorized it and stole from its citizens, particularly because their 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 loved ones were away at war. What did the aftermath look like in terms of the GIs got the ballot boxes, conducted a honest count? Um, they won, right? I mean, they won. They won handily. Yeah, they won by a wide margin. And, uh, you know, they came into office and they abolished the most important promise. Well, two of them, really, that there were going to be fair elections and that they were going to stop accepting fees for law enforcement, that you were going to get paid a salary, regardless of how many people you arrested. And it took the average number of arrests in a weekend from like anywhere between 75 to 115 down to about 15 or 20 arrests per weekend. So that should give you a sense of just how many unjustified arrests were taking place in this county over a, over a period of years. Um, and then two years later, Knox Henry, who's the sheriff's candidate for the GI candidate for sheriff, he runs for reelection and he wins. And the Democrats took out a full page newspaper ad saying, you know, thank you for giving us the fair election. We didn't win, but they felt compelled to take out a full page newspaper <laughs> ad to say, you know, that was a fair election. And we're grateful to you for giving us a fair chance to make our case to voters. And so if you think you go from an election 1946 that gets decided with a six hour firefight and dynamiting of a jail. And two years later, you have the defeated party taking out a newspaper ad saying, thank you for the fair election. I mean, it's it's almost inconceivable that this was the same place a year apart. And this goes right along with it. It's 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 hard to believe that none of these men were prosecuted. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I think that's the case, right, Chris? Yeah. Uh, well, a couple things. Um, you know, we've got the jury system in the United States and part of the genius of the jury system is that, you know, it to some degree it reflects community sentiment and the people in this community did not want these GIs prosecuted for what they had done. Um, so that's a big part of it. And the GIs, uh, made a pledge to themselves that they were going to keep their mouths shut about who did what which was what made it so difficult to track down the names of the participants in the Battle of Athens. Um, they had made a promise to themselves that, you know, if nobody talks, nobody can get prosecuted. So that was part of it. And there's also a great desire on the part of the community just to move on with their lives. Um, these men were very good about, very good about moving on once they'd achieved their objective. I mean, if you look at most revolutions in history, most rebellions, they exceed the scope of their original objective. I mean, look at like the French Revolution, for instance, right? That's what most rebellions look like. Um, look at the Cuban Revolution. You know, the Cuban Revolution, Castro walks into Havana, he's triumphant. All of a sudden, he decides he's going to start putting people on trial. Right. And start 
doing public trials, public executions. Uh, well, if that's your family member that he's executing, tell me, tell me whether you're going to accept the Cuban Revolution or whether you're going to spend the rest of your life fighting it. So that's what happens when you when you can't stop with your objective. And these GIs really are to be commended. And, and the others in this community are really to be commended for saying, you know what? Yeah, we were the victim of some really awful things over the past 10 years, but the revenge, trying to get revenge, or trying to punish these guys wouldn't be worth it. And you would force them to fight for their lives. So we've got our county back, we got our fair election, we've got the GIs in charge, we're gonna move on. And so it was, it was seen by both sides that prosecutions wouldn't be, wouldn't be um, to anyone's benefit, except in one case, there was a deputy who shot a black man, Tom Gillespie, simply for trying to cast a ballot for the GIs. And uh, the GIs did make sure that he was prosecuted and he actually did go to prison for that. But otherwise nobody's prosecuted for anything that happens after the Battle of Athens. The FBI comes to town and launches an investigation into who raided the National Guard Armory. National Guard conducts its own investigation, but they can't get anywhere. The people of the community aren't interested in seeing the GIs prosecuted and they're not interested in spending the rest of their lives litigating the Battle of Athens. Can, can you talk a little bit about the timing of the release of this book? Um, not just the fact that we're in the final day of 2020, which has been a tough year. Um, we, we're all experiencing and dealing with the pandemic. Uh, and what that's like for an author, uh, but also the the fact that you're you, you know we we've also just experienced a very unique uh, presidential election. Um, so, uh, in in your book, of course, talks uh, a lot about real election fraud. So, can you just talk about the timing and maybe some of the challenges you've had to deal with in terms of that? Obviously, when you start writing these books, you never have any idea about what's going to be happening in the world. You start with the idea start writing maybe two years in advance. And so it was remarkable to me to watch events play out in the, up, in the run up to this book's release, not just fighting over the fairness of elections, which we typically don't do in this country, right? We typically have a, have a typically accept elections and we, we move on. And you know, fighting over elections, fighting over absentee balloting, which happens in the book. Um, and you know, election related violence, you know, which we saw uh, thankfully a lot less of than I think uh, might've been otherwise possible. Um, and so it is kind of remarkable to see this book coming out at a time, even at a you know, time where there turns over policing, right? And discussions, national discussions about police reform, where, you know, the, because, because police brutality and police misconduct really were the, the driving issues, right? Two, two of the driving issues in this campaign. And so it's remarkable to see it coming out at this time and, you know, I, I could say the guys in the fighting bunch, the guys who actually stood up to the sheriff and risked their lives and their liberty for a fair election would have loved to have participated in an election like the one we had on November 3rd in the United States, which, of course, was fair and not, not marred by any serious allegations of misconduct. How do you write so many books? Um, you know, as we're doing this interview, you, you know, you're, you're also a dad. Um, you're also an attorney. Um, you know, how do you, how do you get all this done? Yeah, Nick, Nick will probably kindly edit out, um, most of this, but you guys, um, who are listening, I've had to excuse myself several times to attend to my uh, five month old who is, um, ostensibly napping, but in reality, um, needing my attention uh, here and there. And, you know, uh, I, I think the answer to that question is sequentially, right? You do it. <laughs> 
one foot in front of the other, one step at a time. And I'm fortunate to be able to focus on my writing basically full time, which is which is wonderful. Um, and uh, you know, I love storytelling and I love history. And so, as long as people keep reading my books, I'll keep writing them. Tell me about your podcast. So it's this incredible story I came across while researching the Fighting Bunch about a man who was declared killed in action on Iwo Jima, who 10 months later, at least if you believe the people in his hometown, showed up and stayed for two days before vanishing again. And so it's this really compelling mystery about a guy who you wouldn't think, you know, declared dead in action, but also managed to convince everyone in his hometown that it was him before disappearing once again. So it's called the Phantom Marine Podcast. It's available anywhere where you download podcasts. And I'm doing an investigation of this mystery. We don't have an answer yet, but lots of really interesting and weird things happening around the disappearance and alleged reappearance of William Langston. Wow. So it's like one of those true uh, crime podcasts where it starts and you don't know where it's going to go. Um, that's no idea. That sounds great. Uh, once again, the book, The Fighting Bunch, The Battle of Athens, and How World War II Veterans Won the Only Successful Armed Rebellion Since the Revolution. You're Chris DeRose, New York Times bestselling author. Chris, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And Happy New Year. Nick, it's always a pleasure. Happy New Year. Thank you to Chris DeRose. Please check out his book, The Fighting Bunch, The Battle of Athens, and How World War II Veterans Won the Only Successful Armed Rebellion Since the Revolution. And thank you for listening to the History Tavern Podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify, and follow on Twitter and Facebook.